Our scripture today is going to be Lamentations 4, 1 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughters of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their fat face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It, become, it has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became... They became the, their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dodged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwelt in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me pray again. Father, this is your word, and it is a heavy word. Uh, I would pray that you would come now and open our ears to what is true and what is magnifying to you. I pray that you would protect me from error. And Father, I pray that you would open hearts uh, so that we see you more clearly and not only just see you, but, but Father, rejoice in who you are. Uh, help us now as we consider your word to us from Lamentations 4. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been any time in the church, uh, you will know that people categorize the various books of the Bible and in the Old Testament in, in, in various ways. Uh, something you may 
probably have heard of is in the Old Testament, you have major prophets and you have minor prophets. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, the, the minor prophets are the shorter books that, that come afterwards uh, in the way most of our Bibles are laid out. Now, Lamentations is a short book, but it's considered part of the major prophets because it lies right smack dab in the middle of them. Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied for almost 200 years uh, before the downfall of Jerusalem and before uh, the people are taken into exile. This is the warnings and this is the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ezekiel and Daniel, they prophesied during the exile and, and they are major prophets. Now, Lamentations is different. It is written immediately while the siege of Jerusalem is going on and while the people are, it is written in the crucible of suffering. The siege began in 588 BC, lasted about 18 months and Lamentations is an account of that. It's a historical record. Now these things, as Paul says, are written for our instruction as examples to us. We're going to be looking at it and saying, hey, what should we be learning from this? But Paul also says in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So if we understand our Bibles rightly, we're going to draw hope, even, maybe even especially from dark passages like that. Now, let's just review briefly uh, where we are. Lamentations chapter 1, it begins, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. The city was once full of people, and now it's lonely. Jerusalem is kind of on a plateau, so it's a fairly defined area. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered about 116 compounds or, or groupings where people lived uh, prior to the downfall of Jerusalem. They estimate that 92 of them were abandoned. And of those that remained, the population in them decreased by 70%. Doing the math, approximately 85% of the people are gone. That's staggering. That's what's going on. Instead of being a princess, she is a slave. Now, as Kevin brought out when we began this series, this happened because of their disobedience. It's interesting that the Babylonians... Who, who were the ones who built the siege and brought the city down, are not mentioned in Lamentations. The writer, probably Jeremiah, saw through the Babylonians to the first cause. And listen how he begins chapter 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He goes on 
to describe, and that's what really the rest of the book is about. The devastation is complete. And more significant than the devastation itself, the writer insists that we see that it is God who has done it. As he says near the end of chapter 2, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Now, chapter 3, which is the center and the highlight of the book, we are pointed to the faithfulness of God. And as was pointed out last week, yes, God does afflict, but he does not afflict from his heart. It is not his instinct to afflict. He is spring-loaded for mercy. He must work himself up to afflict. If you get nothing else out of this series, hold on to this promise, this description of God from Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That's who God is. He does not afflict from his heart. Now, we come to our text, Lamentations 4. In tone and style, it echoes chapters 1 and 2. It uses an acrostic in um, chapter 4, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Unlike chapters 1 and 2, though, uh, the, the, instead of three lines for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet in chapter 4, it's two lines. I think it communicates a, a certain exhaustion. Each chapter begins with a letter how, an expression, an expression of amazement. And it's good to remember that whoever the author was, he was an eyewitness. The imagery is so graphic and immediate. Now in chapter 4, the prophet describes a series of reversals. In creation, we see gathering, we see ordering. Here in Lamentations chapter 4, it's not ordering, it's deconstruction. We are moving from order to chaos. What is happening is the exact opposite of what it should be. And it's not so much the physical destruction, but the human toll that captures the writer's eye. Now let's look at several groups that arrest the writer's attention. The first of these would be children. Consider the first verse, first two verses of uh, chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. I think the reference to gold and holy stones is a reference to the young. The last chapter of Jeremiah details how the Babylonians inventoried and then carried off every bit of the furnishings and valuables from the temple. I don't think they would have just scattered the precious stones. This is referring to the children. The stones they valued, human life they didn't. 
Notice how the metaphor regresses. What once was gold has grown dim. It's changed into something else. This is alchemy in reverse. What's one, what once was gold is now clay, regarded as earthen pots. Gold and precious stones are formed by God. Clay is formed by a potter. It's cheap, expendable. Look at the children, cries the writer. The next group I want to focus on that catches the writer's attention is mothers. In verse 3, we see more reversal and degradation. Even jackals offer the breasts. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The jackal, never a good guy. A predatory beast is compared favorably to the mothers of young children. The jackal will suckle her young, but the mothers in Jerusalem do not offer the breasts. The children are abandoned. Elsewhere it talks about them scavenging in the ash heaps, which was the garbage dumps. Mothers are likened to the ostrich, where in Job, who, who are regarded as being indifferent to their young. In verse 10, he says, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. It's not just some derelict who does this. The writer wants us to know that this happened at the hands of compassionate women. Those who normally were a source of life and nurture have turned into ravenous beasts. There are more examples of children going hungry. And... and, those raised in finery, scavenging. This is all so awful that in verse 6, the punishment of the people of Jerusalem is compared to the judgment of Sodom. And the writer says, this judgment is greater. Now this is a staggering statement because throughout Scripture, Sodom is held up as an example to remind people what the judgment of God is like. It is sudden it is catastrophic. It is complete. And the writer of Lamentations says that judgment, that judgment is preferable than what happened to Jerusalem. Primarily because the judgment on Sodom was instantaneous. The judgment on Sodom was not an extended siege that saw starvation, brutality, and, and even cannibalism. The next group of people we'll look at, the prophets and priests. When referring to the fact that Jerusalem was breached, it says in verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Jeremiah himself barely escaped with his life multiple times if you read through the, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, in chapter 26, there's a the story of a prophet named Uriah who was killed at the king's command. Jeremiah summarized his uh, ministry there in the times in Jeremiah 6:13. From the least to them, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. 
They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And another example of the reversals, consider verses 14 through 16. And we see what should be a source of leadership and protection, behaving greedily and dealing falsely with those under their care. Look at verse 14. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, the people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. And people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. The priests were to teach and model cleanliness. You can't overstate how much of Old Testament law revolves around cleanliness. But here, now they are subject to jeering. People mock them as being unclean. And those responsible for deciding whether a leprous person can return to being in contact with other people, they are now treated as lepers. No one will take them in. They are disregarded by the people. And more significantly, the Lord will regard them no more. Now the last example we're going to look at of a reversal, look at the king. Look at what happened to the king. Verse 20 says, the Lord's anointed was captured in their pits. We won't dwell on this, but just think of the contrast. Instead of being up on a throne and ruling, he is captured, he is captured in a pit. His humiliation is complete. Now, we've already mentioned it earlier, but I'd like to revisit this question. Why did these things happen? Or to put the question a little more sharply, why is God so angry with his people? There's something focused about this destruction. He does not afflict from his heart, but my goodness, he does afflict, doesn't he? Now, we've said it was because of sin. But if we leave it at that, it can come across a little flat. How many times have we heard the excuse, well, nobody's perfect. Maybe even come out of our own mouths. When we hear that, we say, oh, it's everyone's sins. Something's getting glossed over. Now, we're only going to have time to walk around the edges of this, but I don't think we can get what's going on here without touching on the special relationship the people of Israel had with God. The relationship was a covenantal relationship. Turn with me briefly to Exodus 19. Now we can go to numerous places in the Old Testament to talk about the covenantal relationship with, with God. But I want to go to this passage because for me, uh, it highlights God's intention so clearly. Exodus 19, here's the setting. God has already delivered the people 
out of Egypt with the, the ten plagues. He's taken them through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army has uh, been destroyed. He has provided water for them in the desert miraculously, and he's provided manna. This has all happened before we get to Exodus 19. Now, and he's just about to give them the law at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, that's where you find the Ten Commandments. Now, listen to what God says in verses 4 and 5 of Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First, God, God reminds them of the abject position they were in and how through signs and wonders he, he had rescued them. I bore you on eagles' wings. It, it may not have felt like that to them when they were being pursued by Pharaoh, but it was not a near thing. God had this under control the whole time. Now, why did he rescue them? Where was he taking them? Well, you could say he was taking them to Canaan, to the promised land. To, you know, he promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. I will give you this. And that answer is correct, but that's not what this text says. Look again. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The land, the kingdom, the law, all these were provided so that they could be in right relationship with God. The emphasis is not on location. It's on relationship. It was the sovereign grace of God that motivated him to rescue them and make them his people, his treasured possession. They didn't earn the status of treasured possession. They already had it. It was granted to them when God had already bound himself to them in covenant. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Why? Because it was through this covenant with these people that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, when they sinned, it had cosmic consequences. And we need to see the fall of Jerusalem as an echo in the fall of the garden. They had everything provided for them. They were set up to succeed. Like our first parents, the people of Israel delighted not in God, but in what he had graciously given them. The writer of Lamentations brings this out by showing that the people trusted in things rather than God. Their disobedience was to see God as a means to an end. Now let's consider a few places where we can see how they put their hope in something else rather than God. First thing I want to look at is the people of Israel put their trust in their situation. We've mentioned this before. Jerusalem is built on a plateau. The sides are steep. 
to build a siege ramp, which is how you overthrow a, a kingdom in those days, you not only had to breach the wall, but you had to go up the side of a mountain to get to the bottom of the wall. Look what it says in verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. To put it another way, it was the considered opinion of those who think about such things that there's no way to take Jerusalem. So the people of Jerusalem could quote Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. They had that verse, they had that promise, they had that situation, we're good. God had set them in a naturally formed fortress and everyone thought the place was impregnable and it was until it wasn't. The second place they trusted after their situation was their king. Look at verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Now, the breath of our nostrils re reflects how the king, he, he really embodied the nation as a whole. Their, their identity, uh, the, the welfare of the king, welfare of the nation are just so tied together that th that's how that works. God had established the royal line with David and Solomon. God told Solomon, I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name on it forever. And so, instead of focusing on their relationship with God, they said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. God has put his thumbs up on the king. This is all going to work out. World War II, after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the emperor of Japan made a radio address. Now, for those in Japan, it was a virtually all of them. It was the first time they had ever heard the emperor speak. He was considered a living God. Now, the language he used was very formal and courtly. And what he actually said in the radio address was, uh, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage. That's a severe understatement. Um, it took people a while to grasp just what he was saying. You see, they, like the people in Jerusalem, believed that under his shadow, they would live among the nations, that, that he's a God. God's put his thumbs on him. It's going to work out. It's, it's fine. That they would fall, that the kingdom that God had put his name on, that king would go? It was just unthinkable. Listen to Psalm 146.3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. It's a good word, especially in an election year. Another place they trusted? They trusted in armies. The final example is there in verse 17. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. 
In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Almost certainly, uh, from the record, Egypt is the nation in mind here. Egypt had actually disappointed them in in a prior conflict with Assyria. The people kept hoping that Egypt is going to show up. You know, they'd send emissaries and whatever, some goods along. Our eyes failed in our watching. We watched. Now, you can feel that desperation. Not only did Egypt not show up, but the writer understands it wouldn't have made any difference if they had four they were a nation which could not save. Because God had bound himself in covenant to his people, it would tarnish God's reputation to let them go on in their ways. He had established him through his own grace and mercy, and they had despised the relationship he offered them. God could not let his reputation, his glory, be diminished by a people with his name on them who kept looking elsewhere for salvation. God sent prophets to warn them. This falling away on the account of Israel, it didn't happen in a weekend. No, all of Isaiah and Jeremiah are the record of his prophets calling the people back to him. That's over 150 years. So there we are. Now we come to the end of the chapter. In the last two verses, there's a shift. It depends a little on how your Bible is set out, but basically of the final eight lines, six of them deal with Edom. Now, it can be summarized with Edom. You can laugh now, but your day is coming. The book of Obadiah, one of the minor prophets, is given over to judgment on Edom because Edom had helped and and delighted in the downfall of Israel and Judah. Edom was to the east of Israel, and they were descendants of Esau. God said, your, your brothers... You are going to catch this. They were only too happy to see Israel and Judah fall. It's interesting that Babylon is not mentioned in Lamentations, but Edom is. Their role was comparatively small. But God saw it. And through the writer of Lamentations, God foretold Edom's destruction for the role it had played and for its glee in Israel's demise. When we suffer and the evil prosper, it tears at our soul. We need to remember that God sees. I'm reminded of Paul's counsel in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God sees everything. Now, judgment must begin with the household of God. But it doesn't end there. God will bring everything to light. But what about the remaining two lines? 
The last verse of the acrostic, chapter five, is not written in an acrostic form. Both the structure and the words point to an ending. It's the last verse of the alphabet. Here's what it says, Lamentations 4.22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion. It's accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Now the sense of it is not that God is worn out, but that the work is completed. God is declaring it is finished. Surely the writer has in mind this passage from Isaiah 40, written about 100 years earlier. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's over. There's so much more we could say, but we need to draw some consolation from the fact that God's wrath is not an uncontrolled fury. It has a limit. Evil is so evil, but it is on a leash. In Job, God says of the oceans, now in Hebrew literature, oceans are a metaphor of evil and water of chaos. In Job 38.11 it says, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud wave be stayed. God marks the edges of his wrath of chaos. Now, what lessons can we draw from this? What's intended for our instruction? I think the first thing we can see is that God keeps his promises. Could we really believe that God can and will keep his promises for good if we did not see him keeping his promises of judgment to those who did not heed his word? No, we couldn't. He does not afflict from his heart, but because he is a promise-keeping God, he does afflict. Something else that I believe is of immediate relevance to us is this. Where am I locating my trust? Do I look at my situation, whether it be social, familial, or financial, and say, hey, this is my hope. I'm set. This is going to protect me. These things cannot save. When we locate our hope there, we are focusing on the gift rather than the giver. God saves you for himself. This is what we saw in Exodus 19, and we hear the same thought in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. But that raises a question, doesn't it? When we get to the end of Lamentations 4, we find two groups of people. For one, 
the punishment of iniquity is ended. And for the other group, it hasn't begun. Where is your trust? In which group are you? I'm pleading with you, put your trust in the blood of Jesus. He drank the cup of wrath and declared, it is finished. It is only Jesus who, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not taking the Lord's Supper in, in this season. I wish we could. We celebrate God drinking the cup of wrath so that we don't have to suffer under it. If you are wondering which which group you're in, settle this matter. Talk to someone. I'd love to talk to you. There are so many others here who would as well. Don't put this off. As awful as the description of what is going on in Lamentations is, it will be worse for you if you are not covered by the blood of Jesus. But for those who are in Christ, let me close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. He preached a sermon on this text, and I I found this such a comfort. Listen, I will take the cup of salvation and will call on the name of the Lord. Christian, you may have troubles, but you will never have punishment. You may know affliction, but you shall never know wrath. You may go to the grave, but you shall never go to hell. You shall descend into the regions of the dead, but never into the regions of the damned. The evil one may bruise your heel, but he shall never break your head. You may be in prison under doubts, but you shall never be in prison under condemnation. Let me me pray. Father, you are a promise-keeping God. Give us eyes to see how glorious your promises are. And Father, for us who are yours, I pray that this glimpse, this shadow of the wrath that is to come, this wrath that we have been saved from, would help us to love you more and see how great our salvation is through Christ. Father, we give you glory for binding us to yourself through Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would live out the fellowship of a redeemed, joyful people for whom the best is yet to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.